Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery. And that is why the Machinery Digest exists. A no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello my friends and welcome to this week's show, Idle Chatter by Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer coming to you from the Farm Machinery Digest located on Catswamp Road in Warren County, New Jersey. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. So this is, uh, I'm recording this right after Easter Sunday, the Monday after Easter Sunday, and hopefully everyone had a blessed, blessed Resurrection Sunday and uh, had a wonderful time to reflect on the sacrifices our Savior made for us uh, to wash away our sins. And hopefully maybe some of you guys are uh, actually in the field planting. That's not really happening much here, or happening here at all in Warren County. And it was 38 degrees this morning, so it's not, uh, we had a little bit of rain the other, the other day we had a pretty good rain on Saturday morning before Easter. We had uh, just shy of an inch, about uh, eight-tenths of an inch, and then it got uh, a little bit colder. It was 38 degrees this morning, so it's not really that good of a weather yet, but I think it's supposed to start to turn. You know, usually this time of year it turns quickly, and I know that some people out in the Midwest and the plains are putting some seed in the ground, and the other ones are waiting for snow to melt. So it's a yeah, it's an interesting start to plant 19. But what I'm going to be talking about today on the show is how to uh, eliminate leaks, or how to have a proper repair that eliminate that doesn't uh, cause you to go back in and redo it. You know, I hate doing anything twice. And it's you know, just like replanting in the field. I mean, the first time it's fun, the second time is not fun, and it just never seems to go as well the second time whenever you do anything. And uh, in the car business, we used to call that a comeback. So when you did a job, and I'm sure they call that in many businesses that have repairs, that used to call it a comeback. You did a job and it didn't turn out properly, and the customer would come back and you had to redo it. And, you know, I used to say when I used to teach in the automotive industry, I used to say that, you know, you never have... The, you, the, the Most of the reason why people would claim or the defense for justifying, or I shouldn't say justifying, that's not the proper word, rationalizing a comeback would be to uh, say, well, I was in a hurry, or the customer was in a hurry, I wanted to get it done, blah, 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 whatever it may have been. But, uh, you know, I used to say, you know, you never have the time and I, to do it right the first time, but you always make time to do it again when it comes back. And that's really what it boils down to. And you could take that and take that statement and modify it slightly and bring it across to everything that is in agriculture. You know, uh, you don't have, 
you don't want to wait to get in the field and the saw is a little bit too damp so you start rolling right away and then you're dealing with uh you know with sidewall compaction mudded in seed whether it's corn soybean whatever tradition it's usually corn that gets mudded in but it's planted earlier but uh what have you or you don't have time to uh, clean out the sprayer properly and then you go into the field a couple of days later and you see chemical damage from the crop that you uh that you uh, sprayed so we have to realize that we we have to stop and look at things and we have to always remember that it's it's more efficient it's less expensive and it's quicker to do it right the first time instead of having to do the job over again and that you know that comes with everything and a lot of people even in business don't realize it even though it's not a repair but when you when a company advertises i don't care what company whether it's ford motor company or uh, the local uh, kids with a farm stand with a sign on the highway is that when when a company advertises when anyone advertises they're spending money and or resources or both physical resources and or financial resources but usually both to try to buy a customer because that's all advertising is is buying a customer i don't care what it is what business you're in it's buying a customer and then when they do have a customer they will not take the time or make the effort or the investment be it time or money to to retain that customer so it's such a paradox because you could go to a store let's say in town and they spend all this money to advertise to get your business and then you come in there and you have an issue with something and you're not being nasty or anything and you have an issue and you're coming and you come and you're saying geez you know we need to straighten this out and they give you a hard time or they don't want to do it but then you'll spend them they won't give you a dollar refund on something but they'll spend a million dollars to try to buy another customer and that's how convoluted that is and you know if you take that over to machinery you know using this using my line that we don't have time to do it right the first time but we always find time to do it the second time is that as we all know that agriculture is so time sensitive and I always like to say, and I've said this before in the show, that I look at my farm equipment as emergency equipment, whether it's a fire truck, just like it was a fire truck, an ambulance, a police car, what have you. It has to roll when it has to roll. And because of that, we do not have the the luxury of not fixing it right the first time. And one of the most frustrating things are usually leaks. And you may take something apart to fix something and it was not leaking and you put it back together and now it starts to leak. And we'll talk about the different areas in a few minutes. And or you have a leak and you need to repair that leak and your repair is unsuccessful. And it may not have been, you know, I don't want you to think that I'm saying that everybody's rushing through everything and doing a, doing a, a, a cheap job or a, a quick, quick, uh, quick job. But there are certain elements to a leak repair or preventing a leak repair for a site that you was not even leaking. Let's say you're taking the timing cover off an engine to replace the timing chain. And now you put it back together and the timing chain is fine, but you have a whole myriad of leaks. Or you have one leak, so that's what today's show is going to be about. And uh, you know, as a segue into that, you know, Mack trucks in the, in the probably I would say it was in the early to mid 1980s. Time seems to fly by. It wasn't much before that because I would not have been remembering it. But um, they had an advertising tagline. <laughs> 
called Details Make the Difference. And that is so true. And if you look at any walk of life, it is usually, it's with, with rare exception, it is the details, the effort that somebody puts into something that truly makes the difference. If you, you know, when, uh, when I was involved in drag racing, we used to say, hey, you want to make something lighter because obviously if some if a car is lighter then it takes less power to accelerate it and if you have the same power to accelerate it quicker you know they used to say look you know instead of taking a pound out of one area look to take one ounce out of 16 areas or take a half ounce out of 32 areas and when you look at it that way it's the details and when you build a race motor you could have the same parts every Two, two builders could have the same parts, the same cam, the same heads, the same block, the same pistons, and one guy makes 10 or 12 or 15% more horsepower than the other one because he paid attention to the details. And if you look at if you look at the high-yield farmers, what are they basically doing? They're paying attention to the details. So when it comes to doing anything mechanical, the details definitely do make the difference, as Mack Trucks uh, used to say. And when it comes to our business, and a farm is a business, all of the little details, and if we understand these details and look for them, and look at the situation at hand, and just do everything the best we possibly can, that that is the then we have the greatest chance of success. It doesn't mean you'll always have success. You could do something com- as best as possible, and it turns out wrong for for situation out of your control. I mean, farming, we live with that all the time, right? I mean, you, you do everything to get the best hybrid, the best soil preparation, the best planter settings, the best everything, and then uh, you don't get rain for three months, or you get too much rain, or uh, you get 60 mile an hour straight line winds and it knocks the crop out. But at least you know at that particular point you could have some solace in saying, well, I didn't cut any corners, I didn't look the other way in something, I didn't try to just get it done, and it was out of it was it was an act of nature an act of god that did not allow this crop to yield and you could like i say ultimately the end result is the same but you could stand proudly in front of the mirror and you could say well i did everything i can do to make this work so i uh you know, that's really the mindset and if you listen to my have listened to my show that's really the mindset through this whole process and the farm machinery digest is that i want to be able to educate people so that they can make proper decisions in their farm shop and the proper decisions include the details and the details is in the decisions so that is what we're going to be talking about today but i want to break away for a minute and put some of this together it's saying the details make a difference and also how companies advertise uh, to try to, to try to buy a customer but do very little to retain that customer but I would just want to tell you what a nice experience I had this week and since 2016 planting season I've converted over to a complete agro liquid program and uh, so I haven't put down any dry fertilizer on my property uh, since 2015 because 2016 was the first year that I did that and I uh, use my sprayer and I soil test and what I basically do is as you listened before you know that I deal with a company called The Mill and they're in Maryland and they're owned uh, Ben Hushin and his partner along with Ben's son Tim uh, who is the agronomists? Uh, they have three stores down in the Maryland area. Or I should say in Maryland, outside of Baltimore. And that is my closest agro liquid dealer. 
and what I've and that's depending upon which way you go. I, let's say arguably it's 200 miles. Uh, if you it could be it could be as much as 240 if you go the long way, which is more highway, and closer to 200 miles if you go on more secondary roads and go through the towns. So it's at least 200 miles. And I had got my soil tested. If you listened a couple of weeks ago, I sent it down to uh, to Tim Hushin and over at the mill. And they made up my uh, my mix for my broadcast spread and for my two by two and my planter. And I was making arrangements to go down there and pick it up. Uh, in the past, I've sent it with a common carrier. And three years ago, that was very inexpensive for them to send the totes up to the farm. It was only $150. Then subsequently, as the economy got better, then the trucking rates went up dramatically. And then they wanted $800 to send it. So but that's a story unto itself. But anyway, I get an email the other day from Ben, and he says to me, Ray, I would like to come up and visit you and deliver your fertilizer to the farm. And I was so taken aback by that because, you know, the scriptures tell us that if you could be trusted, that if you can't be trusted with a little, you cannot be trusted with a lot. And... You know, and taking that that verse from Scripture is that I am not a large customer to the mill. By no means am I a large customer. I'm only putting in eight to ten acres of sweet corn, and that's that's certainly not my business. Does not move their needle, or make their quarter, or even make their week. And to think that I had such a high level of customer service from Ben and his family at the mill, and as an agro-liquid dealer just really blew me away and uh, obviously you know I don't, I'm not expecting this moving forward so but the thing is that there was just such a nice gesture that showed how much I they valued my business and uh, and I really think that that's that's wonderful and you know as an aside to that if you 99% of the of everyone who's listening to me has a a, a, a much much larger operation than I do and the thing is that uh, if you're not getting that kind of service from your fertilizer dealer or from anybody you deal with and I understand everybody can't do everything and this was a situation that happened to work out but the opportunity worked out for Ben to be able to do this and he he seized that opportunity and he basically uh, just serviced me uh, over the top, over the, and they've always given me wonderful service, and I just was appreciative of this. And we had a time to go out to lunch. I took them around the area, we had a time to talk talk business, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful day. And plus, it saved me a trip to Maryland to be able to go get that fertilizer. So, uh, you know, just keep that in mind when you deal with your customers. A lot of guys just deal with you. Know, you may sell grain to the elevator, but really, in essence, that that elevator is your customer and he's buying that grain from you and we just have to look at it in business and you know and I appreciate the fact that you're listening to this show because there's a lot of other shows you could be listening to granted they don't cover the same topic that I do and I'm saying that humbly but the fact of the matter is there's no lack of agricultural podcasts and there's people jumping on board every day and bringing a quality podcast to the market and uh, but you're choosing to spend your hour with me listening to me and just like Ben values me as a customer Ben Hushin from the mill is that I always value you guys and that's why I uh, am so appreciative of you listening 
So, hey, just keep that in the back of your mind. When you do business with someone and someone do business, does business with you, the details do make the difference. So now, let's start to talk about leaks. And we're going to break this down into a couple of different areas. And obviously, the first area, or one of the areas we're going to talk about is going to be gaskets. And this and a gasket could be used on anything. It could be used on a pump. It could be used on an engine. It could be used on a transmission. It could be used on a differential. It could be used on a uh, a, a center pivot irrigation system, on a well pump, what have you. So you know this is a generic gasket discussion. Though most of our focus will be on machinery, and the other aspect I want to discuss is the rear main seal on an engine, which is another very frustrating leak site and the third place I want to discuss is basic hoses whether they're hoses on a engine whether they're hoses on a, uh, a hydraulic system on on a uh, a watering system what have you hoses so we're basically gonna break this discussion down into three different areas what I'm gonna start with first is the rear main seal on an engine and why that is such a great frustration if it leaks is that in almost every instance it's a major job to change or without with rare exception i should say is probably a more uh succinct way of me saying it is that it's a major 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 job to replace a, a rear main seal and it's time consuming it's laborious and in lots of in lots of applications you may have to remove the engine from the frame or from the vehicle in some applications let's say for instance if it's a one-piece rear main seal instead of a two-piece rear main seal then you may have to you would have to remove either the engine or the transmission and if it's let's say if it's a seal on an irrigation pump engine or a generator set you're going to have to split that apart uh and it's like i say it's it's no it's no fun so the thing is that if you you don't want to you don't want to do that job twice and many times if it's done incorrectly that you could do that job two times three times four times and still have a leak so that is a major major problem and the thing also is that i just want you to start to think in the mindset that in any business and we have to start to think of and i know that most of you do but there's i'm just like any human being that there's areas that we fall short and i'm the first one to tell you that i fall short in many areas but sometimes we think of even though we realize we have a business we don't look at some aspects of it that way and my contention is that if you're a farmer you're a rancher you're a poultryman you're a vineyard person you have an orchard uh whatever you happen to be producing as your crop, and I'll use the word crop, you're a dairyman, right, because the milk is your crop, you're a, you're a cattleman, the cow is your crop, I mean the beef is your crop, you're a hog uh, operator, so whatever your crop may be, is that you're in business to sell that crop, you're not in business to fix a rear main seal 14 times, and the thing is that what happens is that what you're well aware of is that if you have a a a failed leak repair and we're talking about rear main seal right now but it applies to everything on this show today is that you're taking 
resources, even if it's not a lot of money, you're taking resources away from running your operation. We really have to look at it that way. We have to look at our operation and say, are we taking financial resources or time resources away from it, doing something that should not need to be done or should only need to be done one time and or that we could have done something else and we could have avoided having to fix this, this repair or this failure. Because, you know, coming back to Mack Trucks details make the difference is that if you're laying underneath the sprayer fixing the rear main seal you're not out scouting your crops you're not at, uh, taking tissue samples you're, there's, a, there's a million other things that you could be doing on the farm to make yourself profitable and to increase your profits instead of laying underneath a sprayer and trying to pull a rear main seal out or changing a pump gasket four times or what have you so now, the rear main seal, basically, just for those who may not be familiar with it, but I'm sure that 99.9% .9 of you are, is that the rear main seal is the seal that, seal that that is at the back end of the crankshaft and seals the crankshaft, uh, the oil from the crankshaft exiting the block. And there's a front seal also, but the front seal is historically a lip seal, a one-piece seal that goes in through the timing cover. And the rear main seal is by the rear the, the rear main cap, the last cap on the block that holds the crankshaft into the engine block. So there are basically two styles of rear main seals. There's a rope seal, or some people call it a two-piece seal, and that is probably more accurate because today there are neoprene two-piece seals, and then there is also a one-piece rear main seal, which is most newer engines have that, and it's a lip seal akin to the, the front seal and the timing cover, but it is into the rear of the block. So that means to gain access to, as I said, either the transmission is coming out or the engine is being removed and separated from whatever it's attached to, be it a pump, be it a transmission, a welder, whatever. Now, the thing is that oftentimes what causes a rear main seal to leak and or fail is a lack of ventilation in the crankcase and on a gasoline type of motor they'll have what's called a PCV positive crankcase ventilation system and usually on a on a diesel engine a larger diesel they'll either have some sort of separator or some sort of uh, some sort of vent system it's used a pcv valve works on vacuum and on a diesel it traditionally does not work on vacuum but there's some who's going to be some form of crank case breather uh to allow the pressure that builds up in the crankcase to escape. So keep in mind that if you do have a rear main seal that is starting to drip, always first check to make sure that however that crankcase breathes, then again gasoline or diesel, is functional. Because if you build too much pressure in the, in the crankcase, which is the oil pan, well, it's just for, for, uh, for proper using proper uh, terms. The oil pan is actually the pan that bolts up to the block. The cavity in the block that meets to the oil pan where the crankcase, uh, where the crankshaft resides, along with the oil pan is called the crankcase. So um, if somebody's, you know, wants to beat me with semantics, 
that's when I say the crankcase, it's the whole cavity, whereas the oil pan is the physical oil pan. It's the, the oil pan is the bottom part of the crankcase. But the thing is that what you need to do is that you need to make sure that that breather system is working properly. And depending upon the engine, uh, you will have to check that out. Keep in mind with a gasoline engine that if you have the wrong flow rate PCV valve in that engine, it could be a brand new valve. You went to town and you bought it for this grain truck or this irrigation motor or what have you. Uh, and it is has the wrong flow rate that you will build up excessive pressure and it will push oil past that crankcase seal that rear main seal whether with the neoprene a rope or a um, one piece so the first thing that you want to do is confirm that you have proper breathing and what I would do then is that if it's in if you don't can't really quantify whether the crankcase breather is working properly. Lots of times you'll find that the hose is dry rotted, the vacuum hose, or there's a line that's crimped, or it's plugged with sludge, or like on a, a diesel type of breather, a wasp's nest got up in there, or something like that. So, like I said, I'm not going to waste you know the whole show going through an hour of different scenarios, but you need to be able to qualify that that breather is working. And another easy way to do it is to form, to allow some of the pressure out of the crankcase yourself by by um, leaving the dipstick tube out a little bit and testing. Obviously, you don't want to go in the field with a lot of dust and have the dipstick tube out. But if you clean off that area uh, with brake clean or, some, or, or wash it off and get the majority of the oil out and then run the engine and try to simulate that with some sort of uh, with some sort of uh, means to allow it to breathe if possible that may not always be the case then the fact that matters if you see that the leak went either stopped or decreased dramatically then you know that the rear main seal is not at fault that you have a breathing problem with that crankcase now what I'll do for the sake of this show is to let you know that when you buy a rope, whenever, whenever you're going to buy any type of seal, and not just a rear main seal, any type of seal or gasket, do yourself a favor and buy it from a name brand manufacturer and preferably hope that you could get one that is made in the United States or at least made in North America. All right, because there's a lot, the market is flooded with a lot of stuff from China, from Taiwan, and the take-home message here is though the seal let's say if it's a one-piece rear main seal though the seal may look very very similar to the factory seal which costs more money or the original equipment seal that you're taking out is that there's difference in the rubbers it's really not a rubber it's more like a neoprene there's difference in the rubber compound there's difference in the design of the lip how the lip rides on the crankshaft with a one-piece rear main and all of those things are going to be paramount those details are what's going to make sure that seal fits in there properly now you could have a seal that's made perfectly and it's made from the wrong neoprene compound rubber compound whatever you want to call it as a layperson and then that seal starts to leak because it doesn't interact well with the oil and instead of swelling it shrinks or deteriorates or what have you and the thing is that there's a there's a whole bunch of things that go wrong so to, for you to save five dollars on buying a, a cheap imported seal and then end up having to pull a transmission out of this piece of equipment twice with a one-piece rear main seal all right or pull this engine out because you saved a couple of dollars on that seal is 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 is, is foolish all right very foolish very very foolish and you know 
And the other thing to keep in mind is that if you have, and the same thing happens for a two-piece neoprene seal, there's plenty of wonderful gasket makers in the United States, name brand makers, and if you don't want to go, let's say if you have a piece of John Deere equipment, I would just buy a John Deere seal. You got case equipment, buy case seal. You have whatever brand you have. You have a Cummins engine, buy a Cummins seal. You're going to most likely, and not all the time, most likely spend a couple of dollars more, but the likelihood of that seal being a hundred percent of what it should be is 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 so great that you will not have to worry about having a failed seal from a manufacturing process not from an installation process and keep in mind also i'm breaking away a little bit i'm getting ahead of myself but keep in mind that whenever you put a any type of rear main seal into an engine you have to lubricate that seal with the oil that would be in that engine or something close to it. it doesn't have to be exactly the oil that's in that engine but you cannot put that seal in dry because if you put that seal in dry when you first start that engine especially a lip seal a one piece it's going to run dry across the back of that crankshaft and it's going to and it's going to it has the possibility of of starting micro tears in it and remove some material because it'll take a, a number of revolutions of the crankshaft to get oil back up to, up to that seal and that seal will wear excessively in that first minute or two of of starting and idling that engine if you put it in dry so never put it in dry use oil and or the best thing to do is to use what's called engine assembly lube which comes in a little bottle and that is thicker than oil so it clings much better and it'll cling on that seal and on the, the journal where that seal rides so when you first start that engine it has lubrication so keep that in mind with any seal rope seal one piece seal and that's any sealed front timing cover seal whatever you always the aircraft industry says lubricate with system fluid and that's always the best way the system fluid but if you have engine assembly lube that's that's better if you have nothing in the shop whatsoever then i would use oil or, or maybe like a white grease but you really don't want you really want to use the proper product on there because it's too much work to get in there and it's i mean the seal is five dollars and it's just too much work to get there to not lubricate it and install it properly and if you're putting in a one piece rear main you need to be able to tap that in securely now another pitfall that comes up is with rope seals and if you have and some of some of your older engines may have rope seal or uh, two-piece rope seal rear mains and then again it's imperative that you buy the proper of uh, the proper seal meaning that it's from a name brand manufacturer because a lot of these smaller companies or these offshore suppliers there's plenty of different rope seal type materials they're used in industry on lathes on mills and what have you but they don't have the rpm and the stress that an engine does and the rope the, it's a specially designed rope calling it a rope for a rear main seal for a high speed engine and a, a diesel engine is considered a high speed engine it has a lot of thrust load on it a lot of heat and that's considered a high speed engine so if you so then again buy name brand stuff and you will not worry about it Alrighty, now, so to recap before we move on to gaskets, rear main seal, always check the crankcase breather system before you condemn the rear main seal. Uh, let that engine see if you could get it to breathe, wash off that area and see if it stops the leakage, alright, or minimizes the leakage to the point where you could live with it, alright. Uh, name brand seal, 
like any type of gasket work, ceiling work, cleanliness is next to godliness. Make sure it's clean. Make sure that the seal is put in place properly. Take five or ten minutes studying it after you put it in before you start to reassemble everything. Lubricate it, as I said before it goes in. You cannot put too much lubrication on it. You don't want to have a dr- a dry a dry start on it. And make sure. And the reason. And again, I'm repeating that. The way you would know that you have the proper material for that seal is by buying a name brand seal. A John Deere or Case or New Holland or or, or Cummins is not going to give you the wrong material. All right, they're not going to give you the wrong material. Whereas an aftermarket company that's buying stuff from overseas, uh, they're basically just jobbing this out, and they come and they take the seal and they measure it and say it's in specifications, and they think that it's good. Alrighty, but now the, that was rear main but hopefully you don't have too much too much experience or need to need to work with that uh but the problem the biggest leak areas with gaskets and as i said you know this could be a gasket that's gonna hold any fluid excuse me any fluid back from uh from leaking so the first thing that i want to discuss with you is that then again broken record same thing make sure you buy a gasket from a proper uh, a well-known manufacturer and preferably from the OE supplier because if you buy the wrong gasket material it's not going to withstand the chemical that is or the liquid that it needs to hold back and or it may not have the proper compressibility and you will have leaks and you will do this again and also you know, in the medical community they call it the operative site and that means you know what you hey you know you're going to do something you may have to break the guy's rib cage right to get to do to, to, to do something by his heart but once you get there it's a two-minute operation but you got to rip the guy's body apart to get there and it's mostly what happens with gaskets with rare exceptions the same thing you got to rip into this machine rip into this engine to replace that to get access to that gasket so you want to make sure that the job is done correctly so the first thing that you want to do is that if you're taking a gasket off to be to replace it on some sort of pan and it could be a sheet metal pan or it could be a cast aluminum pan or anything in between is that you want to try to examine that gasket and do some forensics on it you want to try to look to see if at all possible and it's not always possible you want to try to remove that gasket in one piece and you want to see whether it has what we would call even crush around it because the gasket should be compressed evenly all around its contact area where it was to that pan to the to the ceiling surface because if it's not evenly crushed and that's an indication of that of something being warped and if it's and remember a gasket is only designed to take up the difference the space between those two pieces of we'll say metal between the pan and the ceiling surface so the gasket needs to be able to take that space up and have a certain amount of crush a certain amount of contact area for it to walk to work and hold back the fluid so you want to try to be able to do some forensics you don't want to just rip the gasket off of there and throw it on the floor and uh, throw it in the garbage can and keep going you don't have to study it for a hundred years but you want to try to make sure that you had even crush on it to the best you can and sometimes this doesn't happen the gasket tears or it falls apart and you really can't really can't qualify anything from that 
So the next thing that you want to do is you want to study the two ceiling surfaces, the pan and where it goes up against, and you want to clean those off. Now, a lot of guys over the past 10 years are using uh, Scotch-Brite pads on some sort of orbital small air drill orbital sander what have you with a scotch bite pad on it and if you were to talk to a company like felpro where they make their whole business out of sealing is that they would tell you not to do that because believe it or not especially when you're working up against aluminum that that scotch bite pad is more aggressive with the high speed of the of the uh the the drill or the air sand or whatever you have it on and actually starts to eat away material and usually what will happen is that you'll uh, you'll usually chamfer the edge because human nature being what it is is usually in a in a uh, an awkward spot and you'll you'll go with this with the with the scotch bright pad on the drill or what have you and you'll and you'll go off the edge with it and you'll start to chamfer the edge and start to remove material and what you would basically do is you would make a wavy surface you may not be able to even feel it with your finger you probably will if you, let me put this way if you could see it with your eyes you really wrecked it but but usually you can't you you can't see it you uh, but and you may not even feel it but that waviness what will that will do will cause because you have a rigid pan going whether it's aluminum or can or, or sheet metal you have a rigid pan going up to the surface and now this waviness that you call by going aggressively with that scotch bright pad will uh, cause the gasket to be overly loaded in one area and not loaded enough or insufficiently loaded in enough in another area so it's got this wavy motion to the gasket and that is going to make the gasket prone to leak or what you'll have to end up doing is you'll end up tightening the gasket so much that on the points where it is making contact it's actually crushing the gasket to the point where it could no longer seal and just to try to get it to, to seal up in the areas where the wave goes the other way so you want to be able to clean that surface all right scotch bright is good to clean all right gasket surface preparation is the most tedious part of this whole job and that's where a lot of guys fall short i like to use some scotch bright by hand i use a combination of tools depending upon what I'm, how the gasket was removed i'll use a single edge razor blade i'll use a a, a mechanics gasket scraper i will use some scotch bright by pad i will use a soft wire brush on a drill or something like that and then i you want to make sure that you do not violate that surface with any cleaning uh, equipment and then you also want to pay attention to the bolt holes that because when you're cleaning something you usually get debris in the bolt holes and then when you get debris in the bolt holes then obviously the bolt is tightening but it's got the friction from the debris in the bolt holes and it's not putting it's not not compressing up against the pan properly and holding it is because the threads are dirty so you want to make sure all all of the threads are clean and then depending the next thing that you want to do is invest in a in a in an inexpensive straight edge it doesn't have to be perfectly straight but in a, i mean I, I should say perfectly that's not correct it doesn't have to be a real machinist straight edge that you're using to build a missile that costs 500 dollars. but you want some sort of straight edge type of ruler and you want to quickly lay that around on the two ceiling surfaces to see whether there there's any gap 
in there and then you may if you see a gap you may want to go with a feeler gauge and measure the gap so let's say you have a three thousandths inch gap you put a well let's make it easy numbers let's say five thousandths that you put your straight edge on there and you have a five thousandths gap around there all right and you say okay i got five thousandths over here i got two thousandths over here i got four thousandths over there it's not perfect i mean you know, you're gonna have a little bit of variance right and that's fine so so okay i got five thousandths that's my biggest area then what you would basically do is that then you would measure the thickness of the gasket be akin to like measuring bearing crush on a crankshaft or a connecting rod you measure the thickness of the gasket so let's say you're 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 widest point on the ceiling surface is five thousandths with the straight edge and if you don't have a straight edge you could actually bolt the pan up there loosely without a gasket don't don't you know make it tight but don't warp anything and then go with a feeler gauge around there if at all possible to see whether what the largest gap is so if you have a five thousandths gap and you have a twelve thousandths gasket then you know that even when that gasket crushes slightly and depresses slightly you're going to be more than five thousandths thickness so it's going to seal it and that's a very simple test to do it's uh, usually uh, in some applications it may be hard to get to the area the site area but you want to try to do the best you can then again details make the difference five minutes spent trying to to make sure that the gasket surface or 10 minutes spent not is not warped is better than three days working on it pulling the motor and transmission back out Alrighty, so we want to make sure to check the fit and you want to make sure that the uh that we have flatness and that we have a clean gasket surface and that the whatever warpage there whatever gap there is less than the thickness of the gasket uh especially when it's new and most gaskets will not compress that much so you don't have to go crazy if it's not brain surgery but all these little things make a big difference now <clears throat> If you're using, if the if the piece, the, the pan that you're taking off is not a cast aluminum type of pan, it's a sheet metal pan, what you're going to need to do is peen over the bolt holes. And if you are listening to this show on one of the um, podcast sites, and not on not on my personal website, farmmachinerydigest.com, uh, you may want to go to my website and just go to where the show is, this uh and then you'll look at the lead picture and what i'm showing you there is how you peen over a bolt hole on a sheet metal pan what's going to happen is that because most sheet metal pans are thin they may have a ridge there for uh for strength because they're thin when you if someone over tightens the bolt or even if you tighten the bolt and the pan comes on off a lot that the the pan will actually start to bow at the bolt holes so what you want to do is if you see in that picture what you do is you take the lip of the pan and you put it on a hard surface let's say like the edge of the workbench and you hold it down and you take two ball peen hammers you take a ball peen hammer that is as close as possible to the size of the bolt holes and you put the small end around the, the ball peen hammer onto the pan at the bolt hole and you take another hammer it does not have to be ball peen and you'll tap it and what you want to do is you want to not just straighten out the area around the bolt holes you want to actually bring it the other way slightly so that when you tighten the bolts it brings it flush against the gasket and that's an old trick that i learned up in a general motors training center 
in Tarrytown, New York, by my instructor there, Richard Hip, God rest his soul, great man, learned a lot from him. And that is a, a specified, approved way of of tweaking and bringing back to its natural shape the uh, a sheet metal oil pan around the bolt holes. So even though the pan will be straight, and if you look, if you take a sheet metal pan off, oil timing cover pan, pan off a sprayer, whatever it may be, and you were to look at it, and uh, if it's a sheet metal one, not a cast one, a cast one won't bow, is that you'll see that because the metal is thin there, the tension of the bolts actually bowed and TP'd that area just around the bolt hole. So that means that you have uneven crush on that gasket. So when the bolt, if you didn't, if you didn't peen that back over, you have the gasket at the bolt hole coming in contact with the pan first, and then there's an uneven pressure load against the rest of the gasket a sixteenth of an inch away from there. So by peening it, you want to actually go a little bit out the other way, just slightly, so that when you tighten the bolts and then bring them home, that it takes the pan and it it, it it reshapes it back so it's level. And you never want to tighten any type of pan in a row. You want to go around in a circle. You want to go, and you don't want to bring the bolts up. Guys use air ratchets. I, 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 I cringe because an air ratchet, you're not going to be able to control. You want to go by hand. You want to snug the bolts. You go across one side of the pan and, and, and then up... Or, up one side and down the other and then flip it around the then go the other way you want to go on an angle like crossing them like tightening a tire and you just want to bring the pan up uniformly and to, to start to contact the gasket and it'll take two or three times of you tightening this procedure bring the pan up evenly have it contact the gasket then start to snug it up snug it up and then on the last procedure you could go round robin around the perimeter of the pan then you don't need to if you need to 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 tighten over tighten these bolts, then you have a problem with that pan is either bowed or that gasket is is or the surface is bowed or what have you. You need to make that gasket snug against the pan and start to compress it slightly. You're not going in there uh, with anything more than the three eighths ratchet, and you don't want to use an air ratchet. And I mean, somebody may be listening and say, "I use an air ratchet all the time, and I have no problem." Well, God bless you. But the thing is that you need to really have a feel for that bolt and feel for bringing that pan up. You don't want to do this job twice. Alrighty, and and once you warp that pan and you uh, it's well, warp that surface, it is going to be a, uh, a a much 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 bigger job. And uh, so let me recap with that. What you want to basically do is you want to examine your gasket as best as you can. Uh, you want to examine your surface. You want to clean the surface. You don't want to use an aggressive Scotch-Brite type of cleaning pad. You can use that by hand or very gently if you're using an air tool. You could get the feel of it. You don't want to go in and, you know, look at this. Hey, look at this, Joey. I got this gasket off. I'll clean in two seconds. Cleanliness is next to godliness. I like to use brake clean to wipe the area down to inspect it. I would maybe go around the bolt holes with a, with a single-edge razor blade you don't want to forget about the the actual bolt holes the threads of the bolt holes because uh, you will get debris and dirt in there and you want to be able to use a, a flat edge and a feeler gauge or if not if that's not available 
bolt the paint up snug uh, without a gasket and try to go around in a couple of areas as best as you can with a feeler gauge and see what the distance is, what the gap is. And that's a very, very accurate way to be able to uh, to determine if there if there is any warpage because of that. Another thing that I want to add, whereas I was saying you know, a gasket, you don't want to lubricate that gasket to put it on there. I mean, so it's when I was talking about the rear main seal or lip seal, any type of lip seal, whether it's a rear main pump seal, whatever, you don't want to put that on dry because a seal is a, a gasket does not work up against a moving or rotating member. A seal does. So a, a crankshaft front seal is riding on the journal of the crank, the, the snout of the crankshaft. Uh, a pump seal is riding on the shaft of the pump. So let's say you have a hydraulic pump or you have a pump on your sprayer the seal that's going to go where the shaft comes out is a lip type of seal and that needs to be lubricated as I said when that is installed you need to use some sort of lubricant so the seal does not start does, does not run dry on startup but let's say you're putting a, a you're taking the pump apart and you're changing the lip seal let's say like on the sprayer pump and you have a gasket in the back the gasket in the back you want to check the surface but you don't want to lubricate that with anything to when you put that on there you want to be able to put that on without any system fluid in it now a lot of people like to use some sort of gasket sealer on there whether it be some sort of silicone or a, a some sort of Permatex is a brand, but Permatex type of product. And remember, a lot of guys like to use RTV, and RTV uh, was actually the precursor to it, was invented by General Motors, and it was called GMS, General Motors Sealant. It was the orange RTV, and RTV stands for Room Temperature Vulcanizing. So that will not vulcanize or cure if you're doing this outside and it's 30 degrees outside and you, or, or 25 degrees or you're in an unheated shop that RTV will not cure and is very prone to leakage. And now keep in mind that some pieces of equipment do not use a gasket. They use some sort of sealer alone. They don't use a gasket. And that's when General Motors came out with this GMS, General Motors sealant, with the 1980 2.8 60 degree V6 that they had no gaskets in there, they used this General Motors sealant. And that's that type of sealant just without a gasket, and subsequently the industry went away from it because the surface had to be too clean and too temperature sensitive. To, uh, but a lot of guys like to use a little a sealer on there to hold the gasket in place. That's fine, but you want to make sure that you're not overdoing it with that sealer. And personally, if I could use a, if I could have a gasket instead of sealer, I like that better. And if you want to uh, use some some sealer on there to tack the gasket in place let's say you're doing a differential cover and you want to tack the gasket in place so it doesn't move around before you uh, put it on that's fine another good trick uh, a lot of you guys may know it is to use dental floss and tie the gasket around in a couple of like four different places put the pan up or the differential cover or whatever it is and then before you put those bolts through just snip the dental floss and pull it out and it'll hold the gasket in place and you know it's application specific sometimes you could put one or two bolts through the gasket and get it started finger tight and you're fine you know what I'm saying but keep that in mind that a gasket and the only reason why you're putting up a sealer putting a sealer is to either hold the gasket in place or make up for a variation 
friction in the in that surface a waviness in that surface that the gasket will not be able to compensate for but if you have a flat surface peened over bolt holes then you do not need to put any sealer on that other than as a cement to tack it into place when you put the bolts in and the last thing I want to talk to about hoses and if you have a hose on a piece of equipment which is akin to like a brake hose which is called which has a banjo type of fitting which is a, a, a bolt a round fitting at the end of the hose a bolt with a with a passageway a hole in a passageway gun drill passageway goes through it and it uses two washers a washer between the bottom end of the banjo and the surface it's attaching to and then a, a bolt that seals the uh, washer excuse me that seals the bolt to the top of the banjo those are considered crush washers and they everybody you know everybody reuses them but in theory they're not supposed to be reused so if you have a uh, if you're doing a lot of banjo bolt type of hose work or banjo fitting type of hose work the best thing is to have and you could buy a very nice supply in a box of different size uh, crush washers and uh, banjo bolt washers and you, I mean I've gotten away with not using it I'm, I'm guilty of that sin I didn't want to run to town to get it and I've I've, I've gotten away with it uh, but the thing is that in theory just know that that washer is supposed to be removed and replaced every time it is that it's a one-time crush in theory so keep that in mind and that's with a hose that is held on with a banjo fitting now if you're doing a hose let's say like a radiator hose a heater hose a bypass hose some other type of hose on your sprayer you know most of the times first of all if you're going to remove that hose the best thing for you to do if you're going to junk the hose for whatever reason all right the best thing to do is to slit that hose they have a radiator hose knife they have a hose knife or if you're careful just use a single edge razor blade and you want to slit that hose and peel that hose back off of that fitting specifically like on a copper brass radiator or a newer aluminum radiator with plastic uh, uh, with plastic tanks on it that you don't want to twist and moose that hose off because that hose very, may very well be stuck to that to that neck and then you're going to end up cracking it now if you are going to reuse that hose then what you need to buy is a they call it a radiator hook tool or hose hook tool and what you basically need to do is take that clamp off and you need to gently gently take that hook tool and it looks like a crooked screwdriver with a hook on the end almost like a crooked awl I should say not screwdriver and you need to try to work that hose around and and try to break it loose and what I like to do is then if it doesn't if it's stubborn I will go and I will take let's say like a um, PB blaster WD-40 and I'll lift that hose up a little bit with that hook tool and I'll spray some in there give it a minute or two to work and then work that around and get that hose off you want to make sure that you clean the neck that that hose goes on properly and you like and depending upon the surface if it's a copper surface or metal surface you could use some scotch right there by hand some emery cloth you want to clean it you want to wash it and wash it off with something 
I like to use brake clean because it dries very quickly and it's really not offensive to anything. A non-chlorinated brake clean. And you also want to go inside that hose because if you're reusing that hose because you'll be there'll be corrosion built up inside that hose. And that you want to try if the hose is being put back in place. Let's say you're removing a water pump and you need to take the hose out of the way and you're not replacing the hose. You want to gently get it off. You want to clean inside. You want to clean the surface. And then what I like to do is use clear spray silicone silicone and then you could use a silicone and spray it onto the neck and inside the hose and push that hose on and put it back in place and it's also imperative if you're reusing it to put the clamp back in the same place where the clamp is taken that's set on the hose and you want to make sure that you don't over tighten that clamp if it's a screw type of clamp over tighten that clamp to be able to and uh and to cut into that hose which is very 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 common and so basically it's cleanliness it's care it's making sure you use quality materials making sure on a flat surface that it's flat on it that the bolt holes are not peened over on some sort of pan and if you do those simple steps you will have leak free repairs and that's what the whole thing is i want you in the i want you on your farm doing what you need to do to make money not jerking around uh fixing a a a leak 15 times so now we're going to our special delivery section and special delivery is brought to you by firestone ag a company founded by harvey firestone a fourth generation farmer from columbiana ohio Harvey dreamed of putting rubber tires on farm tractors and his innovative mindset is the core of Firestone Ag today. And it lives on with their 23 degree tread bar, their AD2 technology tires and their brand new redesigned replacement tracks. The soil is the lifeblood of your farm, trusted only to Firestone. I have a very simple question here, and it was written to me, and I'll read it to you, and it's from Chad Nordberg. Hopefully I pronounced your name correct, sir. And he says, good evening, Ray. I have a technical question for you. I have a friend that ended up with a dead 12-volt battery out in the middle of nowhere. He called me and asked if he could charge the battery with a 6-volt charger. That's all he had access to. I said it would not charge the battery because it would never get enough volts to the battery, even if it could boost up to 8 volts. But what is? But what if the charger could provide a bunch of amps and 6 volts? What's the difference between a trickle charger that drops the amps and volts down to a maintenance charger on a battery. I'm still thinking it won't work, but not positive. I've tried calling my local battery store and they didn't know either. They just said, they just said, why not just use a 12 volt charger? I had to remind them that it was in the middle of nowhere. If you left a 6 volt charger on overnight, would it provide enough charge to get the 12 volt battery at 12 volts in the morning? Thanks in advance for your response. I enjoy your segments on the Successful Farming TV show. Keep up the good work. Basically, in essence, <clears throat> look at it this way, sir. First of all, thank you for uh, for watching me and for contacting me. But uh, a 6-volt charger, 8-volt charger, 12-volt charger, that is the maximum that you will bring that battery up to. You could, you could end... You could leave it on there for 200 years, and it's still not going to get above that maximum uh, that it, 
of the of the rating of what it's of its output. So to answer your question succinctly, sir, is that the six volt charger would never bring the battery up to twelve volts, and every electrical opera apparatus works on Ohm's law, which is volts times amps. And if that starter motor or that whatever it may be, needs so many watts, volts times amps, to be able to operate. So if it's down to 6 volts, then it's going to try to draw more more amperage to get the watts because it's modifying the equation by itself, by the laws of nature, and it will not work. And or, you know, you could have a low battery and you could try to start an engine, you burn up the starter, burn up the cables. You say, how can I burn it up? It's because it tried to draw more amps. So it's watts, volts times amps is watts, and every electrical device requires watts to be able to function. So the fact of the matter is that the 6-volt charger is not going to do anything for you unless that engine is able to crank on 6 volts. Uh, so there's what's called a threshold voltage. And on a 12-volt system, the threshold voltage is around 9 volts. On a 6-volt system, which they don't make anymore, it's probably around 4 volts. Right? So anything, but it will draw more amperage out of that battery. So the battery will not have the reserve. And it will actually possibly, many starters were burnt up. And cables were burnt up because of a low voltage uh in the battery and it's trying to suck more amperage. To answer your main question, what's the difference between a trickle charger and a maintenance charger? A trickle charger, think of it as like a faucet that's dripping. It's always going to be forcing some electrical current, some electrons into that battery regardless of its state. So given time, if you were to have a trickle charger and you left it on something, let's say a piece of equipment that you parked all winter, that it would eventually has the potential to overcharge that battery, boil the acid out, and start to, to deteriorate the internal plates. Whereas a maintenance charger has a logic circuit in it and is able to identify how much that battery is drawing and it actually duty cycles itself unbeknownst to you. So if it gets to a certain point, let's say it's a 12 volt battery and gets up to 12.6 volts, which would be fully charged, 2.2 volts for each voltaic cell in the battery, then it actually shuts itself off. And then when the battery starts to degrade back down, it turns turns itself back on. So basically it duty cycles, it goes on and off without you knowing it. Whereas a trickle charger is giving a trickle, it's not a fire hose, like a boost charger. So just think of that if you had a, a, a sink, you had, you had the stopper in your sink and you had a drip in your sink, drip in your sink, and you sealed off that the stopper was in there so the water couldn't drain out, then you went away for two months, you would have water on the floor because it eventually filled that sink up with water that is your trickle charger a maintenance charger is it would be let's say like a sink with a float on it so when it got up to a certain level or a toilet tank the float comes and it shuts off so that is the difference between the two and that's why a maintenance charger can be used to maintain a battery and keep it fully charged while a trickle charger is a good charger to have instead of trying to force a lot of current into a battery to bring a battery back up to its full operating state. So a trickle charger is almost like foliar feeding a crop. And uh, so you're giving it a little bit it needs, but you can't keep giving it to it 24 hours a day.
Alrighty. So hopefully that answers your question. If not, sir, please feel free to contact me. So listen, I want to thank you again for listening to the show. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Hopefully you learned something, and I look forward to uh, communicating with all of you. And just email me at hotrodfarmer at farmmachinerydigest.com. And I wish you a blessed, safe week if you're going into the field and planting, and I wish you a bountiful harvest. And as always, please know that I am pulling for the American farmer and my beloved, beloved America. God bless you, God bless America, and God bless your farm.